What are the images that come to mind for you when you hear the word power? When you hear that word power? For many of us, it seems, our minds begin to fill with pictures of power misused or of power actually abused, occasions where somebody's authority was, was distorted and caused harm, uh, experiences we've had perhaps in our own families or in our workplaces, maybe even in the church or in our government that uh, give us a sense that power is a dangerous thing. As we began to explore in our conversation last week, however, when the Bible talks about power, it, it is generally not with this kind of negative association to it. Though, though there are certainly uh, passages of the scriptures that deal with power abused and misused, when the Bible initially talks about power to us, it speaks of it in very, very positive terms. The deepest and most original form of power, the Bible says, is the kind that God exercises. And, and God is not manipulative, he is not exploitative, he is not destructive, but God's power is creative, enormously creative. And as the first two chapters of uh, the book of Genesis illustrate for us so very, very vividly, God uses his power for one main purpose, to help his creation and his creatures flourish. That's the primary use of power. Power is for flourishing. God's vision is not to simply see his creation or his creatures surviving, as I reminded us last week, but thriving in every way. And, it, and God has given to humanity a very special part to play in helping that thriving, that flourishing, uh, to, to happen. When the Bible teaches that God made humanity in his own image, it is saying that God endowed human beings with a power like his. The, when you hear image and likeness, think of power. God has given us the power for creativity, for, for love, for grace, for the, all the ways that he uses power. God is saying to us, in effect, do not run away from power. Do not give up power to people that are not rooted in my life. God is saying, embrace the power I've given you. Just Use it the way that I use it. Rule over this garden wisely and well. Exercise dominion, he says to his creatures. Call things by name. Give them an identity. Remind them who they are. It's one of the exercises of power. Be fruitful and multiply. Let this world teem with every form of the goodness that I make possible. To put it in some fresh terms for our conversation today... God gave human beings the power to make stuff and also the power to make sense of life in a way that expresses and extends the glory of the first maker himself. And it is this stuff-making capacity and this sense-making capacity that, it, that I want to think about with you today as they are joined to the intentions of God. In other words, we're called to promote flourishing for ourselves and for other people by making or managing material goods. That's why the Bible, a proper Christian worldview, is very up on, 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 on the value of industry, 
on the, on the, on the value of, of business and organizations and institutions because we believe that God has called us to be about the business of making and managing uh, his goods. And also by constructing frameworks of meaning, uh, uh, arranging um, systems of meaning that reflect the character of God. For example, in the, in the Meyer household, we have uh, been given the chance to manage uh, or make a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it feels like the, we, we're making and managing more stuff every single year. Uh, and, and in our house, um, there's, a, there's a particular location where uh, stuff has a special kind of significance for us. Among the stuff that we've got is some beaten up old furniture that we have that's arranged in this cozy configuration around our fireplace. And, um, and, and above the fireplace, there hangs an old oil painting that comes down from my side of the family. And, and beneath the oil painting, on the mantelpiece, is a, a bunch of cloisonne artwork that comes from my wife's, Amy's side of the family. And a lot of the memories of our family's life are gathered up, caught up in that circle. Uh, none of those goods that I'm describing, especially not the furniture after years of dogs and kids, um, none of that is particularly valuable in and itself in a monetary sense, but some of our very richest moments have been spent with kids and dogs and, and parents sprawled out and communing in the midst of that circle of furniture and those symbols of family, both past and present. In fact, we recently proposed to our kids that maybe it was time to get rid of some of this stuff or replace some of this stuff. And there was a hue and cry like you wouldn't believe from our kids. No, don't replace that. No, don't take that away. And the reason, of course, was because even that broken down stuff participates in the sense of meaning that, that our family has made together. The experience of family. And the stuff and that sense of meaning together form this profound sense of family community. And that family community is a major part of God's plan for human flourishing. Now, now the same sort of relationship between stuff and sense, between material goods and meaning, exists right here in this room too, if you think about it. We've got all kinds of material stuff in this room. We've got that piano. We've got the communion table behind me. We've got these marvelous stained glass windows. We have the Bibles and the hymnals and the pews. There's lots of stuff here in this room. And these things help us to participate in the act of worship that expresses the meaning of our faith. And because worship is a way of staying connected with God, our Creator, what we do together to make sense with all of this stuff is a pathway to human flourishing. You can find a similar set of connections between the things and the people that you encounter um, in other cultural contexts too. For example, how many of you own and manage some golf equipment? Raise your hand if that's you. You know somebody who does for sure. Now, now. I'm guessing that those items, those, those things, help you participate in a meaningful circle of friendship someplace. Um, 
And somehow those things get used to convene an experience that's about a lot more than that little ball, uh, whichever direction it happens to go. And because golf playing promotes not only friendship, but also deep humility and a certain amount of prayer, at least I hear the Lord's name spoken a lot when I'm out on the golf course, because of that, it too is a pathway to flourishing. Now, I just love the way my friend Andy Crouch sort of puts all of this together in a helpful way. He says, there is no material cultural good that does not participate in some project of meaning making. And there is no human venture of meaning making that does not result in the creating and the sustaining of material things. And all of this is the very good calling of God's image bearers in the world. Our most fundamental task, writes Andy, is to unfold the world's abundant possibilities and its deep meaningfulness. Our our primary task is to cultivate and to create in such a way that the true identity of God and his ways are named and praised. We are involved in this culture-making through through our stuff and the sense that we make of life using it. In other words, your family and your friendships, your, 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 your feasting and your recreations, your engagement in work and the arts and in worship, your charitable giving, your activism out there in the public square, all of these are environments where you have opportunity to experience the goodness of God and to extend it to other people And this is what Genesis calls image-bearing. Extending the the beautiful goodness and grace and, and power of God. And we live into that calling by the way we exercise our power over stuff and sense-making. Let us make mankind in our own image, we read in Genesis. In our likeness, said God. Why? So that they may rule. Why does God create them in image and likeness? So that they may rule. So that they may use the power I have given them for making material and making meaning and find through this the true uh, purpose, the true flourishing for which I've made them. Are you getting this? Are you taking these ideas in? Here's the catch in all of this. This is the catch. Sometimes we get mixed up about this. Sometimes we lose the connection between material stuff and the larger sense of meaning that that stuff is meant to to serve and the connection with the person of the maker himself. Sometimes this chain of of significance between stuff and sense-making and the source of it all in God gets broken down and scattered. And we begin to focus on the individual parts over much without seeing their overall coherence. When these connections break down, we are tempted and frequently do fall into what the Bible calls simply idolatry. This is what the book of Genesis is revealing for us today in chapter 3 as having gone wrong with our first ancestor's life. This is what the book of Genesis would suggest to us is still going wrong today 
and helps to explain why we're not seeing more widespread flourishing on planet Earth at our time. So let's go back to that story together, if I may, and, and, and see what it has to teach us about these things. When we left them at the end of Genesis chapter 2, you may recall, Adam and Eve were walking closely with their maker. They were following the few instructions that he had given them to make sure that things went well for them. They're using and they're, and, and they're enjoying the uh, abundant array of material goods that have been put at their disposal. They are making a tremendously meaningful life for themselves and for the other creatures in the garden at this time. They are experiencing the bond of, of being husband and wife and stewards of the garden. They're living without any kind of shame. There is no evidence they have any sort of worry. In short, both the creatures and the creation are doing what? Begins with an F. They are flourishing. That's right, they're flourishing. And then this voice slithers through their heads. Permit me to paraphrase the start of Genesis chapter 3, if I may. You see that particular stuff hanging over there on that one tree, the serpent says? And Adam and Eve say, you mean that one tree with the fence around it? Yep, that's the one, smiles the serpent. I want you to really focus on that tree. I want you to really zero in on that stuff. Because you cannot have a meaningful life unless you have that stuff for yourself. But our maker has been very, very good to us. Our ancestors counter. He's given us this gigantic garden full of all kinds of trees whose fruit we're absolutely free to enjoy as much as we want. Every day we're eating of the tree of life in the center of the garden and we are thriving and we are flourishing. And God has said there's just one thing we must avoid. We must not eat of that particular tree because if we ignore that commandment, we will surely die. No, says the serpent. No, you won't surely die. You'll live even better. Taking that will make you flourish even more. For God knows that when you eat of that stuff, you will be like him and no longer need him. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And that original state of flourishing we miss so much, we still call it paradise, was lost to humanity. And we entered this world of wilderness. Tragically, we keep repeating the mistake of our ancestors. We keep falling into idolatry. Idolatry is the belief that we can find our ultimate satisfaction in material goods or can make a truly meaningful life for ourselves apart from the true God. 
Let me say it again. Idolatry is this belief that the stuff will be enough or that our sense-making capacity is sufficient without God. Without God. Ancient pagan religions had idols of, of wood and stone that they bowed to and they sacrificed to in order to, uh, to gain certain things for themselves. They, they did it in the hope of, of gaining victory over their enemies in battle. They did it to gain greater fertility. They, they, they worshipped idols for the sake of bringing on favorable weather. Many of us are wondering where the weather idol is we might be tempted to bow to it today but today's idols are actually much more subtle much more insidious much more sophisticated and ubiquitous I want to suggest to you today that there are three major idols in particular that vie for a position in our hearts at this time and which make us use power in a very unhelpful way for some of us it's the idol of control that ironically controls us. We tend to use our power, our personal authority and capacity, to try to establish as much control or certainty as we possibly can. In other words, we employ our strength or our emotional intensity or our mental faculties to manipulate or to dominate people and situations in this life in the belief that if I gain uh, mastery over this situation, over these people, over my performance, over my schedule, my income, whatever it may be, then I'll be okay. I will be content, strong, or safe. If I have control, I'll flourish. It's one of the most powerful idols there is, and it shows up in many different forms. The serpent's lie here is that we can be like God, we can be sovereign in control over everything if we just work at it. But because people and circumstances and even providence itself are far more fluid than force, this idolatry mainly produces in us fear that we're not able to control it or anger or, or, or maybe a blind arrogance that we are in control. For others of us, the God we serve most steadily is the idol of significance. And the clue to that is that we devote a lot of our personal power to trying to get recognition and affirmation for ourselves. We think, if I can just prove to this person, or, or, or to this social circle, or to this group of professional colleagues that, that I am virtuous, if I can just prove how competent, how loving, how much fun, how capable, important, or beautiful I am, then they will praise me for this, and I will be significant. I will really matter. And the serpent's lie here is that we can be, or we should be, the glorious center of things, that everybody else is giving accolades and affirmation to. It's the underlying lie there that we can be as God in that sense. But only God. God alone is glorious in himself. And every other form of glory is reflected glory. 
It's the glory of the created. It does not belong at the center. Our worth comes from the fact that he made us and he loves us. He has given his life for us and we are significant because he says so. Regardless of what others may think. But perhaps I haven't named what is for you the most potent idol of all, the one that enthralls you. Maybe for you it's the idol of comfort to which you bow down. You're the person that the Corona commercials are written for. You're the person that the luxury ad writers are thinking of when they're crafting their messages. You're the person that the lottery promos are aimed at. Your power is channeled in all kinds of ways towards trying to get the easy button for yourself, the stress-free, the well-padded life. If I can just hit my number or escape to that place or experience those thrills or get free of these responsibilities, then I'll be blissful. And when that doesn't happen, when life's pressures weigh in on us in the midst of all of those desires, then we find other forms of escape. Because we're desperate to find this comfort, so we turn to drinking or to drugs or to sex or to shopping or to some other form of, of addiction, just trying to give ourselves at least a moment of comfort, and we believe the serpent's lie that we can be as God, like God, we can have a heavenly life right now. It can be a cloud-floating kind of life. We're reaching out for that. But as Jesus shows us, even God suffers sometimes. And even struggle and pain can often be the path to a greater kind of flourishing. Now my, my belief is that these idols, to which I am personally prone myself in various ways and at various times, these things occupy and sap the use of our personal power and they offer us a very thin or illusory kind of power in exchange for all we put in. Every single idol makes these two false promises to us. If you make me, instead of God, your source of satisfaction, you will flourish, the idol says. You will surely not die. You will certainly not die. You will flourish if you make me number one. In fact, with my help, you can become your own source of flourishing. You can be like God. You can make a life for yourself, what these idols are suggesting. But to twist the old proverb, idle hands are the devil's playground. When we take hold of these things, when we try to make this stuff and try to make sense of life in the way that these idols are always trying to call us to, it is the devil's playground. And not only do idols fail to deliver on what they promise, they end up destroying their worshipers. Idols start out offering great things for a very small price, then they up the ante. Just a little bit more of this, just another one of those, just a, some more huffing and puffing on your part, another round of cash, some more time. And as idols fail to meet their initial promises to us, they, they blame your lack of sufficient investment in them, and they call for more from you. You need another drink. You need to, to go shopping again. You know, you need, you need that person to believe in you and to praise you, right? You just need more and more 
and more. They demand greater and greater sacrifice. And in the end, they don't deliver anything of lasting substance or meaning, yet they have demanded everything from you. They've just taken everything from you. They've kept you from experiencing the satisfaction that you would have experienced, that you would have found in the right use of stuff and in the sense of meaning you would have discovered if you'd been devoted to God above all else. And this is why the first commandment that God gives us in the Bible is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's why Jesus says, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Center yourself on him, Jesus says. It's not because God is an egomaniac that he commands these things. It's not because God needs the attention, right? He doesn't. God calls us to center ourselves on him because it's the key to human flourishing. It's the absolute key. Let me close by reminding you that the serpent has not changed his strategy at all over the years. That Genesis 3 story is the lens through which we have to look at all of life because it says M.O. in every single generation. In fact, he tried to derail Jesus with the exact same approach before Christ's own mission got really started. If you read your way through the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, you will see this. You'll find the devil there trying to tantalize Jesus with promises of physical power, social power, and political power. That's what the three temptations are all about. But underneath each of them, each of those temptations, are the same themes we've been talking about. Do what I say, and you can have food that satisfies your hunger. You can have comfort. Do what I say, and you can have fame in front of the crowd. They'll give you significance. Do what I say, and you can have control over the nations. You can have this, this perfect control. Throw yourself down. All this I will give you, Satan said, if you will just bow down and worship me. But do you see the massive irony in these invitations? I mean, here he is trying to tempt with the comfort of bread a man who is the bread of life himself. He's trying to tempt with social significance a person who is routinely worshipped by angels. He's trying to tempt with political control somebody who is already the king of kings. It's like the serpent is betting that Jesus has forgotten who he really is. And guess what? That's what he's betting on about you and me. That we've forgotten, really, who we are. The truth, my beloved, is you do not need what the idols offer. <laughs> you just don't need it. Because you are a child of the creator of the universe himself. You are beloved enough for him to come and to die for you upon a cross. You have been given by God himself the 
power to be his witness, to use material stuff wisely, to make sense of this world by shaping circles of meaning for yourself and for others. And the devil's greatest single fear is that one day, maybe even this particular day, you will fully wake up and recall who and whose you really are. And in having that awakening, You will let go of the idols and you will turn all of your power toward glorifying him. And in the process, you will flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask you to to loosen our hands from the grasping way that we try to take hold of control and significance and comfort and instead turn our hearts towards you. For you are, Lord God, the ultimate comfort. You are the source of all real significance. You are the one whose sovereign control of all things we can trust. And so redirect us today. Help us to use our power in a way that takes the stuff of this world and makes sense of of all of the circles we get to influence in accordance with the values and vision of your kingdom. For we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.